following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, that's a Maria. Good morning, everybody. Just one more Sunday of the Royal Press to go, right? And uh, welcome to those of you online today, too. You know, earlier this week, we um, watched the state funeral to remember a great royal, Queen Elizabeth. It was on Christmas Day, 1952, at just 26 years of age, that the new monarch spoke for the very first time to the world. She said, oh, as monarch, speaking for the very first time to the world, I should add, pray for me, she said, that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making, and that I will faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. And it was a prayer that God certainly answered. Uh, her lifelong consistency in private faith, uh, the example of integrity she's been in public office, especially, uh, it's pretty amazing, especially in a world where uh, leaders are falling and failing all around us at uh, significant rates. Uh, it's right that she is remembered and honored. And it should have been that way for the king we're looking at today, King Manasseh. Uh, we read that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. Okay, it's not a 70-year reign, but 55 years, long enough for him to make a significant impact for good on the world around him. And that should have happened, because he had everything going for him in order to do so. Uh, first, he co-reigned with his dad, Hezekiah, for about 10 years. So pretty good example uh, you know, for a dad, had a good apprenticeship you know, to, to lead him into what should have been a good reign. Uh, on top of that, he was exposed to the teaching ministry of prophets like Isaiah and Micah. If you kind of know your Bible, you've probably heard about those, those prophets. You know, imagine having them directly speak to you. You know, being in the room when Isaiah shares his vision with you about the holiness of God. You know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then having Micah like, speak directly in person to you, calling you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Should have laid a great foundation for his reign. On top of that, he saw what had happened to the northern kingdom of Israel when they had turned their back on Yahweh, pursued other gods, and how the nation of Assyria came around them and scattered them, pillaged them. And, you know, whoever was left, they were just all around the place. It should have been a warning to him. On top of that, he had seen what happened to his own people, the nation or the kingdom of Judah. Uh, if you remember last week, you know, Hezekiah was in Jerusalem and, and the, the nation is under siege from those same Assyrian, that nasty group of people. And, and yet his dad, Hezekiah, cried out to God and overnight without the kingdom of Judah having to do anything at all about it, uh, God defended his people. God was fighting the battle. The people woke up the next morning and 185,000 enemy soldiers lay dead before them. In other words, Manasseh was set up for a long, righteous reign. But he is by far the worst king that we have seen and will see in our series. And this should make actually many of us pause for a moment. But because if Manasseh had like everything needed for a long, successful, prosperous reign, and yet he failed miserably, it should almost be this wake-up call to you and me that we can have like everything going for us. Uh, we can send um, our kids to the very best schools, to the best leadership academies. They can be part of a, a loving, supportive 
happy Christian family. And yet they and us and people that we love can have everything going on in life and yet fail miserably when it really counts. Manasseh's story is a story of just a sequence of horrid events. And there's no way to sugarcoat it. This is a complete mess. And the story raises a question for us. What do we do when there seems no way out of the mess that we're in? The author sums up Manasseh's situation right here. He says, Manasseh did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land of the Israelites. It's quite a summary. And that word evil is going to come up again and again throughout our story today as we hear a list of the evil things that Manasseh did. This is how Manasseh's mess begins. It says he rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had destroyed. It's the first thing on the list, and we'll see a bit of a shambles of that mess kind of coming around us. The first thing on the list is he wipes out the good that his dad had done. Remember, his father is a reformer towards God, but once Hezekiah is dead, he wasted no time turning towards evil. Apparently, having a godly parent doesn't guarantee anything. So almost as if Hezekiah's reign never happened. But the list is just beginning. The mess is just beginning to pile up. It says he constructed altars for Baal and set up an Asherah pole, just as King Ahab of Israel had done. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Ahab and his wife Jezebel and how they led the people into like some seriously bad, evil things. But Ahab and Jezebel, they were from the southern kingdom, sorry, the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, Manasseh is in the kingdom of of Judah, that this shouldn't happen to people in Judah, but it's like they're just as evil as the other kingdom. Continue to read. He also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. He's like turning to all the powers that he can find out there for help, except turning to the one who created the heavens in the first place. Continue to read. He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord, the place where the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. Later, we read that he actually had the audacity to commission an idol to be placed, to to be crafted, and then placed right in the the center of the temple and the Holy of Holies to Yahweh. The the, the very place where where God had reserved his people to to kind of come and and find a place where they could worship and remember him. Fittingly, his name Manasseh means forgetful. He's probably the king of forgetfulness, crafting a new narrative, a new story for the people of God. But we're only halfway there. The mess is only just beginning to pile up. Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. I mean, just, just get your head around that for a moment. I mean, this is barbaric. It's hard to stomach. And it's not that he hated his son. It's quite, it's quite the opposite. It's just he found himself in all this, like, bind with geopolitical issues. My guess is that, you know, he's kind of surrounded with all these enemies around him, wanting to take his life, wanting to take his kingdom. He felt he had nowhere else to go, so he sacrificed his own son in order to try to awaken the gods, whoever they might be out there, to see the blood, to see the, the, the extreme measures he might go to, crying out for help. What a tragic state of affairs. But the mess continues to escalate. He practiced sorcery and divination. He consulted with mediums and psychics. In other words, he's trafficking in the dark powers. And this is happening to the, to the people of of Judah, they're meant to cry out to God for guidance, for protection. In the verse 16, we read, Manasseh also murdered many innocent people until Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. 
In fact, Josephus, a historian, a Jewish historian from around the time of Jesus, records that Manasseh slaughtered prophets of God on a, on a daily basis. Uh, Justin Martyr uh, claims he was the one responsible for taking the prophet Isaiah and having him sawn in two. And this is what the prophet Micah was, was, was talking about. You know, the need to act justly, but he's ignoring any of that. It's the murder of the innocents. It's toxic. It's cruel. The writer continues, This was an addition to the sin that he caused the people of Judah to commit, leading them to do evil in the Lord's sight. His actions are contagious. The people now find themselves in their own messy situations, and that mess continues to spread and be adopted to others. The list finishes with a glaring assessment from Yahweh. King Manasseh of Judah had done many detestable things. He is even more wicked, get this, even more wicked than the Amorites who lived in this land before Israel. He has caused the people of Judah to sin with his idols. I mean, this is as bad as it can get. It's like the writer here in 2 Kings wants us to see the hideousness of Manasseh's actions over and over and over again to feel the full weight of it, to experience the stench of the mess that happened under his leadership. It is a shambles. It's a messy, messy situation. At the same time, it's easy, isn't it, to look at this pile of mess and to feel somewhat disconnected from it, removed from it. Now, my mess... It's not my choices. I didn't do it. Unless it's directly in in our world, or unless it impacts me very personally, it's just what it is, just a big pile of mess. And isn't this what we see in in our newsfeed almost like every day when we take our phones and we scroll through and we just see, oh, there's another war. You know, messy situation. You know, more bloodshed. Unnecessary bloodshed. Another murder, another another ram raid, another thing. It's just this messy situation around us. And because we see it on this daily basis, it's almost like we can become emotionally disconnected from it. And we almost don't kind of see, feel the weight or, or really pick up on the stench of the mess. Not my choices, not my mess. Somebody ought to do something about it. Somebody ought to clean up the mess of the situation we're in. Or we see somebody else's messy life, their actions or their failure to act, and it just feels too hard for us. Much easier just to like, like stand at a distance and, and see the mess but really not engage in it. Or, or, or we see what it is and we can easily kind of wag that finger at people. You know, if only people were more responsible, if only people could make better decisions and act with more integrity, we, we wouldn't be in this mess. They wouldn't be in this mess. And it's not that I think that I'm perfect, but my mess isn't as bad as this. Um, My mess is kind of hidden away. It's tidy mess. It's unseen mess. I haven't hurt anybody with my mess, have I? There's nothing to worry about. And it's almost easy to create this lens of blamelessness that supposedly frees me up to criticize the mess out there in other people's lives, a a mess caused by politicians and my neighbors and my colleagues and my boss and people that are out there. 
thank God that I'm not contributing to the mess. Except I am. I think uh, the Russian Nobel Prize winner, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if I pronounced that correctly, he said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, which people have tried before. But he says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Could it be that somehow we have contributed to the toxic mess ourselves? You know, several decades ago, a newspaper posed this question, you know, what's wrong with the world? Catholic thought leader G.K. Chesterton reputedly wrote a letter to the editor with a two-word answer. He said, dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. You know, that, that two-word answer is this honest assessment of someone who's grasped the reality of the situation as well as the message of Jesus. You know, Jesus had this remarkable ability to get to the heart of the problem and, and not just see it as something kind of out there, but something right in here, in the heart of every single person. In fact, listen to what he once said to the religious establishment of the day whose, whose lives on the in, outside looked spick and span, but on the inside, he says, were a complete mess. He says, you're hopeless. <laughs> he doesn't hold back. You religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds, you like manicured grave plots, grass clipped and the flowers bright, but six feet down is all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. Uh, people look at you and think you're saints, but beneath the skin, you're total frauds. Uh, you say that you, if you lived in the days of your ancestors, no blood would be on your hands. You protest too much. You're cut from the same cloth as those murderers, and you daily add to the death count. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying to the religious establishment of the day that they're like the very people who historically had killed the very prophets. Remember, this is what Manasseh did. It's like Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you're just as messed up. You're like people like, like Manasseh. You know, perhaps we actually have more in common with Manasseh than any of us might wish for. See, I wonder if, if we were sitting down with Manasseh, whether we would find that he saw his life like this, or whether he saw his life as just somebody, another guy with a lot of insecurities, trying to cope with the situation he was in, trying to just survive, even, even thrive in a manic world around him. You might have said to him, well, Manasseh, you know, why did you place that idol in the temple? You might have just said, well, you know, I guess, well, the people are worshiping other idols anyway. I mean, I'm just trying to find the, the convenient space, and we're, we're in a desperate situation here. But Manasseh, you, you, like you sacrificed your own child. And you might hear the bit of a pain coming through, and then he would just say, well, sometimes you just have to do whatever is necessary, because we were in, in this tight situation, people wanting to take the kingdom, wanting to take my life. We're just crying out to, to the gods to come to our rescue. And okay, you haven't sacrificed a child. I haven't sacrificed a child. But I wonder if it's possible that our own idols of success cause us to work these unnecessary hours 
sacrificing time with our own children. I mean, isn't that just another form of sacrifice, albeit to a different idol? And, and don't we turn to other experiences and relationships and things that, that promise the world to us, but all they deliver is just this messy, messy situation? So I think if we just take a step back and get an honest assessment, we would say that we are more sinful than we ever thought. You know, I see this in my own life. And the older I get, the more and more I see that I've caused a lot of harm to people around me. The things I've said, the things I haven't said, the things I've done, the things I haven't done. As I get older, I see more and more the potential I have to harm others. Thankfully, with God's help, that gets less. But again, the older I get, the more I understand what the Apostle Paul once said, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. So I think Paul would say, actually, this is our mess. This is the hurt that we bring. It's the omissions of things not done. It's the life we try so hard to hide. And God doesn't want it to stay this way. And that's why in Manasseh's case, he sent prophets to warn him. He sent prophets to warn the people, but the people are like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not listening. And so it's the pain of a parent watching their child go down a path of, of self-destruction. Maybe you've been there before, you've, you've called out, you've urged, and just like your Heavenly Father, you can understand that the warning, the pleading, the desiring, you know, keep going down that pathway and, and your marriage will be over. You know, if, if, if you don't take another pathway, you, your kids will not really want to hang around you in the future. If you continue that behavior, it will become a habit that will become this addiction that will eventually rule over you. Please, would you just stop? Would you, would you just listen? because I want the very best for you. Heavenly Father pleads that we would wake up and listen. But like Manasseh, we just make all these excuses. And the mess continues to grow and the toxicity just increases. And so here in the story in 2 Kings, we read, so this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, I will bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judea that the ears of those who hear about it will tingle with horror. I'll judge Jerusalem by the same standard I use for Samaria and the same measure I use for the family of Ahab. You see, God isn't one who turns a blind eye to injustice and just lets it go. He's not one that will allow the, the murder of an innocent child, you know, the son of Manasseh who sacrificed, to go unnoticed. He's not one to let the innocent slaughtered throughout the land again to go unnoticed. He warned his people then and now that things will come to pass. What you sow, you will reap. That's why the author of Kings places the story right in front of us. Because he wants us to know that there's consequences for our actions. And it was what Manasseh did, this messy situation that he led, that would actually lead to the downfall of the kingdom of Judah. And according to 2 Kings, this is the very end of Manasseh's life. This is how his story ends. What a depressing story 
to share with you today. But, you know, history is always told with a perspective in mind. Here in 2 Kings, the writer of 2 Kings wants us again to see this is the consequences for our actions. But, you know, the story is also told over in the twin books of Chronicles. And the author of the Chronicles is writing to tell us a different purpose. He's writing about 100 years or so later after the exile happened, after the the, the people of God had experienced the chaos of their actions. And he's writing to them, and he wants them to be inspired with, with hope. And he wants them to see what can happen if you just like turn your eyes again to God and call out to Him. He wants his readers to see that Manasseh's story didn't actually end in a pile of mess. And so when you flick over to Second Chronicles chapter 33, after going through exactly the same list that Second Kings had, we read that Manasseh then was taken off into captivity. And, and it's like, as the world came, came crashing down around him, Manasseh kind of came to his senses, and he called out to God, You know, often it's only when life comes crashing down around us that something seems to, that this light bulb moment seems to switch and we come to our senses and we cry out to God. And we read in 2 Chronicles 33, while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and he sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, listen to this, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. And he brought him back to Jerusalem and his kingdom. And Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. You know, the book of 2 Kings doesn't talk about this ending to the story because 2 Kings, again, is written with the perspective of, of, of wanting us to know there's consequences for our actions. But a hundred years later, the writer of Chronicles wants us to see actually Manasseh's personal story didn't end that way. And your own personal story never has to end this way either. But here in the story, this king personally discovers that the Lord alone is God. He wants us to know there can be a very different ending to your story, a story of grace. That while it's true that we are more sinful than we know, we are more loved than we can ever imagine. You know, sometimes we think that the idea of grace is just a New Testament idea. But the idea of grace is not just a New Testament concept. It's not the way I read my Bible. This is in the Old Testament too. Again, just look at Manasseh, an evil man. A, a brutal leader who caused so much damage. I mean, even killing his son. And your Manasseh finds grace. Manasseh receives forgiveness. His life is transformed and changed. And as I think of his story, as I, as I look at Manasseh, I've come to see that Manasseh is like the prodigal son of the Old Testament. If you know your Bibles, you'll probably be familiar with the story that Jesus told is found in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The plot of the story is pretty simple. There was a father who had two sons. 
the, the younger one asked for his share of the inheritance, which is kind of like saying to your dad, I, I want you to die now because I want your stuff. The dad acquiesces. He gives his son the share of the inheritance. His son promptly leaves for a faraway country. He, he squandered it all in this, this selfish way of life. And, and things started off really well. He was enjoying it all, and then it went kind of into this, things went bad and from bad to worse, and he just found himself in this messy situation. He, he lies eventually in this, this pigsty, which for a Jew is as bad as it can get. And, and while he's lying there, starting to see the end of his days, he, he thinks, if only I could just go back to my father and plead my case to him and just be one of the hired help. It has to be better than dying here with the pigs. He makes his way off in the story. And then the unimaginable happens. He comes around the bend, coming into the village where his dad's home is, and, and as he comes around the corner, even though he's some distance from the house, his, his aging dad can see him. He's been looking for him. He's been longing for this moment. And then his father runs towards his, the, the son, the son that has disgraced his family name, brought dishonor to him, and yet the father runs, something you never do in that kind of culture. The artist Rembrandt captured this in the famous 17th century painting. Hopefully we can see it up here on the screens. Notice the younger son kneeling, resting his head on his father's chest. He's exhausted, disheveled. He wears just, just one tattered shoe. His life is a complete mess. But here and now, he is undeservedly and unexpectedly welcomed home. He's safe. He is deeply loved. After the scene, the father will replace the foul-smelling clothes he wears with the very best robe. He'll bring out new sandals for those feet. He's going to throw the party of the decade and join in with all the festivities and dance with his son with much joy and happy tears. You know, the late Henry Nouwen, the prolific author and Christian theologian, wrote this, this beautiful classic book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in that book, uh, he starts to talk about his own life. He says over and over again, he says, I have left home. I have fled the hands of blessing and run to faraway places searching for love. It's a great tragedy of my life and the lives of so many that I meet on my journey. He says, somehow I have become deaf to the voice that calls me the beloved. There are many other voices, the dark voices of the surrounding world trying to persuade me that I am no good and that I can only be good by earning my goodness through making it up the ladder of success. And where did that ladder of success get us? Well, it got us to this situation. Or, of course, it might get you to be the other brother in the story. You notice the other brother here in the painting. He, too, has a story. If you, if you come back to this painting here, you can see the older brother who stands to the far right. He actually looks a lot like his dad in the painting. He stands with the same robe with a lot of gold and red on it, just like his dad. And yet there's a lot of dissimilarities with his dad. His dad has that posture welcoming the younger brother home, you know, arms wide open while the elder brother to the right 
hands clenched. While the father welcomes his son, the elder brother stands stoic and straight and judgmental, looking down on the younger brother who has trashed the family name. You see, his respectability, his morality have blinded him. He's living under the father's name. Sure, he's living in the same house. The tragedy is he's blinded to his own mess and his own situation. You see, elder brothers tend to divide the world into two. There's good people who are just like me, and then there's everyone else who causes the mess in the world. But it's not an honest assessment, is it? Sadly, the church can so often be full of older brother types, these grumpy, angry, bitter people, angry at what other people in the world have done, and sometimes upset that God hasn't struck them down dead yet. And it's possible that we can do all the right things, but internally we're blind to our own messy situation. It's, it's possible that we can see the mess of others, but be blind to our own offenses. It's possible that we can stand back in this self-righteous, condescending way. That if we look again at the painting, we can see actually that there are others in the painting beside the father and the two sons. There's three others. It might be hard to see them here today. But they're all observers, they're bystanders. When you look at the other three, there's one that you can kind of see, one further back, and there's one way back in the darkness and the shadows. And when you take a look at their faces, you see a mixture of indifference, of curiosity, of daydreaming, of attentive observation. It reminds me how, how easy it is to kind of be a bystander of this moment of grace, to, to kind of stand back somewhat at a distance and fail to personally step into the very center of the activity and to kneel down and let myself simply be loved by a forgiving, gracious God. And it's like we've been invited to move from being bystander to participant, to actually start to contemplate our own story and start to experience anew the wonder of grace, the wonder of what forgiveness can do in our own lives. So, so where might you be in this picture today? You know, whether you're the younger brother type or the older brother type or some bystander in the story, the Father invites all of us to come and kneel and receive His love and His forgiveness. Why don't you just, just take another look at the painting and just picture yourself as the prodigal son here in the story. Look up at the Father's eyes, those tired eyes, those tear-stained eyes that have been waiting, longing for you to kneel and come home. And notice the open posture. Notice those hands. Notice how the hands are quite different from each other. The left hand of the Father is very masculine, strong, protective hand with a grip on His Son protecting Him. The other hand, the right hand of the Father, is more of a delicate hand. The fingers are close together. It's a very soft hand, providing consolation, providing comfort, stroking, offering support. Hands that protect, hands that comfort. Those hands have been on my life from the day that I was born. I've come to know them more and more as the days have gone on. They've protected me in times of danger. They've consoled me in times of grief. 
and they've always welcomed me when I have strayed. And I've come to hear the voice of my father whispering to me, you are my child whom I love. Upon you does my favor rest. Just come home. And you know, if you will kneel before him today and allow those hands to be on you, he's actually whispering those same words to you. Our scripture tells us that he's doing this to you by name. You are my child whom I love. Upon you does my favor rest. Come home. You know, this is the love that Scripture says surpasses knowledge. It's, it's in these moments that we grasp how wide and high and deep is the love of Christ, and we're invited to experience this love that surpasses knowledge. Friends, this is the gospel. The gospel that says while we are more sinful than we can ever know, we are more loved than we can ever imagine. You know, 700 years after Manasseh, our Old Testament prodigal son, another son was born. He was actually born in the same Fokapapa, the same genealogy of Manasseh. His name was Jesus. And we know that Jesus was born amidst all the mess. In fact, uh, he was born with the tyrant Herod trying to kill him, just like Manasseh had done to prophets before him. Uh, Jesus became a prodigal son for our sake. Although he was obedient, he left the house of his heavenly father. He came to a foreign country, gave away all that he had, and returned through the cross to his father's home. And all he did, all of this he did not as a rebellious son, but as the obedient son, or seeking to bring home lost children back to the father. He came as one who acted justly, who loved mercy, who walked humbly before his father. And so Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to be the mess for us, so that in him we can become the righteousness of God. So what did Jesus do? Well, it says that Jesus took off that beautiful righteous robe, and he calls us up and he places that righteous robe on, on you and on me. And then he sits amidst the mess that's not of his own making, it's your making, my making. And he wears all the consequences of our mess. Uh, he's stripped of everything so that we can receive his inheritance. Uh, he was beaten and dishonored so that we can go free of shame and guilt. And he became the target of bitterness and anger and injustice so that we can receive love and joy and peace. This is our king who loves to sit in the mess, your mess and my mess. But he didn't just come 2,000 years ago into that mess. He's still willing to come and sit with your mess today and to do something about it. This is the core work that he loves to do because he loves you deeply. He's inviting you today to respond. You know, perhaps you've never responded to his loving invitation to draw you near Perhaps throughout your life, you've always been that observer. You've, you've seen these stories of grace, but it's always been in somebody else's life. The Father's calling you today to come and actually experience grace and forgiveness in your life. And all it takes is for you to call out to Him in your own words. There's no magical formula. There's no script to follow. You're just crying out to Him, telling Him you're sorry for what's happened in your life.
asking him to adopt you into his family. Or some of you might feel that your mess is actually, well, it's just too big. You know, you're kind of beyond grace. But if God can do this in the Old Testament prodigal, Manasseh, pretty sure he can do this in your life, my life, and the lives of those around us. He says, come home. There's a place at the table reserved for you. Today, we're invited just to bask in the love of God because while we are more sinful than we could ever know, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And not only is he wanting you to respond at a personal way, but he wants you to show this grace towards others. It might sound kind of cheesy, but to allow your mess to become your message to other people. You know, this is the gospel at a very personal level, that our mess can become our message, that God can do something about it. You know, some of you have a son or a daughter or a grandchild or a friend or a parent or a grandparent, and it just looks like a hopeless situation of their life right now. Perhaps this story is a reminder to you that if God can do this in Manasseh's life, this, this highlights the, the power of grace, the power of what God can do still today in the lives of people we love around us. So who's hurting around you? Uh, who's in a really messy situation that just needs to hear through your life how your mess can become a message of grace to them? Who needs to know that while we are more sinful than we could ever know, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Wonder we can pray together. Uh, today, Father, we want to come and kneel before you. We want to feel those hands of grace and forgiveness. Hands that protect, hands that comfort drawing us close to you. Help us to hear your whisper that you are my beloved. Come home. And so today we again receive your grace. We receive your forgiveness. And we acknowledge the mess of our lives and our households. Thank you that you receive us home not because of anything we have done, because all we bring is the mess. But thank you for your love, for your acceptance, and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.